thank you for coming. Uh, can you hear me? Oh. I can, oh. Katerina. Can you hear then me? It was on my side. Yeah, I saw the gray thing that you were speaking, but I didn't hear, but it was my side. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, let's wait like uh, three, four minutes and then I'll introduce you to everyone. And uh, Victoria, if that's okay with you, she usually asks like, a little bit general questions like how did you come to become like a scientist or somebody that works in this field if that's okay with you for like a more introduction of you as a scientist and then and then we go from there is that okay that sounds perfect i'm happy to answer any questions you have great that's perfect um okay uh Let's wait like three or four minutes. Oh, Victoria is here. Oh, sorry. There you are. I'm Victoria. Um, meet Angus. Uh, Angus, meet Victoria. She's the co-moderator here, so she will ask you some questions too. It's great to meet you, Victoria. Yeah, I think she she has right now a phone call or something. She will talk with us in a minute. Sorry, sorry, I didn't realize I was muted. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, I don't know how long I was muted for, but um, I said hello and nice to meet you, and then I'm going to go and change my PTR. I was trying to explain to you, Angus, that here in Clubhouse we can use our biopics for messaging. And so I was in a room with a lot of musicians. They were Italian and I wanted to thank them. And so hence my PTR, but I'll be right back. I'm gonna change it to me. Perfect. Yeah, it's surprising how fast, like, um, I know there's, like on Clubhouse, there's a whole, whole language and culture that developed in a quite short time. I guess people during COVID had spent too much time here. So that's no, I actually, I have a lot of friends who keep telling me I should check it out. And of course, I'm just very uh, technologically inept, like most middle-aged men. So I'm always, you know, it's like, I, I'm terrified by anything that's more complicated, basically, than a typewriter or a lawnmower. But this seems so far to be relatively intuitive. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty easy. Like I can explain you like in case you want to go some um to some other rooms and stuff. So uh the microphone button is easy then the messaging button let me just uh, write you a message. Uh it's like the paper airplane sign. Um there you can direct message people. Um, and uh, then you have the hand raise sign. So if you're 
in a room where you're not a speaker to begin with like um you can use like the um people that are in the audience are uh like followed by the speakers is one section and then others in the room is another section so if you're down there you use the hand raise button which is uh to the left of the microphone and um if you raise your hand then um oh you were Oh, hey. Yeah, so uh, if you raise your hand, then people can let you up to the stage, bring you up to the stage like I did Vic with Victoria, and then you, you're able to speak. So people that are only in the audience, they cannot speak. Um, they can just use the chat, like the chat room, which is all the way to the left on the bottom. There's a sign with a speak um, bubble sign. And when you click on that, you can say hi to the whole group like the whole um um like everyone that's in the audience and as speaker there can, can chat together no it sounds awesome it's very much like uh kind of early shakespearean theater where no one no one in the audience is allowed on the stage but you're allowed to heckle endlessly and if you're successful enough at heckling you can kind of elbow your way maybe into the front and maybe even onto the stage with the clowns Exactly. <laughs> Did you hear what he just called us, Katarina? Did you yeah. catch that? Well, yeah, exactly. That's what we are doing. Making it's all a show. But um, <laughs> that's so good... I, I have one technical question for you, which is that my phone is telling me that my wireless signal is weak. Is this going through wireless or through my five G? Do I need to get closer to a wireless transmitter? Well, it depends what your phone is uh, using. So. Um, if you're currently on the Wi-Fi, I feel like sometimes the app just does random things. I, okay. I have those messages in between too, but we can hear you just fine. So we'll let you know if you're like breaking up and stuff. But for now, it seems totally fine. But right, yeah, perfect. you can also just use your cellular data, but uh, I can hear you very well so and clear. So I think we're fine. Oh, right. And then if you want to go to other rooms and speak, like comment or say, you know, it's all bullshit what you're saying, <laughs> things <Yeah>. like that, <laughs> you can, you should um, like put some information in your bio. And then if you have a Twitter account, maybe link it because people will think that you may be just a bot and you want to um, take down the room <laughs> because there are bots like this that just come and, uh, like I don't know if that happened recently. Did any bot like destroy the room lately? I think people are just very careful now. So. We're 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 good at dealing with the the hecklers and whatnot. Yeah. So now Victoria's in the matrix on my end, and perhaps she is seeing a red signal bar on her end. We've got your back, Angus. Really? Am I still? Okay. Nope, got oh, we no. got you yes. back. We got you back. The packets are back. Okay, so I think we can start. Um, so welcome everyone to the Science Society. Um, thank you everyone for coming and a special thanks to Dr. Angus Fletcher. Uh, he's our guest speaker today. We'll talk about his very interesting paper he re uh, recently published. And let me tell you a little bit about him. 
he is a practitioner of story science and he has a dual degrees in neuroscience from the University of Michigan and literature PhD at Yale and um, he his research employs a mix of laboratory experiment literary history and rhetorical uh, theory to explore the psychological effects cognitive behavior therapeutic of different narrative technologies he's also an author he um, his most recent book is wonderworks the 25 most powerful inventions in the history of literature and then he did a scholarly book before comic democracies from ancient athens to the american republic was john hopkins published 2016 and um, he, um, he is currently also developing a TV series for David Stern and Scott. And yeah, he has been supported by um, grants from the National Science Foundation, um, National Endowment for the Humanities, Mellon Foundation, and so on and so forth so yeah I, we are very honored to have you and i was actually yeah I, I was very thankful and surprised that you agreed to come so thank you and uh victoria yeah go ahead and then victoria will ask you a few questions no i was gonna say don't don't feel honored at all i'm excited to be here um and hopefully that biography made me seem suitably eccentric um and all over the place and i would be happy to sort of provide something of a through line and sort of explain how all those slightly different things do kind of pull together into a kind of coherent research project. You, you, uh, you predicted the, the question that's coming up, Victoria. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. <laughs> Thank you for the handoff. Um, I feel like we're choreographed. So, Angus. Um, welcome and thank you so much for being here. I had a great time reading through your this bio that Katarina sent me, and it was fascinating. So, um, yeah, maybe we can pin that at some point as well. I I was interested, especially in the idea that I don't. Well, it, it seems that your work is somewhat interdisciplinary, and at the same time, I use that word with a disclaimer because I think that that really. Conventional education requires us to create the, uh, the idea of disciplines in the first place, you know, and that really the, the interrelatedness of things is, I think, the way of the universe. And maybe I think that's what I'm seeing in your work. And what, I, what I'm interested in, you mentioned a through line is maybe a line through even farther back into your childhood or any point that you choose. But when did you first become interested in in what you're maybe what you're working on now or even in in the idea of science so and having yeah a life so first of all to your point about it. disciplines absolutely i mean disciplines come about to kind of answer a problem and i think sometimes when we think about interdisciplinarity today what we think about is kind of mushing together a bunch of disciplines um but really interdisciplinary research comes about when there's a problem that falls between two disciplines or a problem that requires two or three or four disciplines or even a new discipline to answer um and i got started on this current line of research when I was pretty hardcore in neuroscience, actually in neurophysiology, which is one of the most boringly 
um, sort of materialistic reductionist branches of, of neuroscience. We were sort of studying cell secretion, um, how packets of vesicles were released into the synapse and things like that. And I was working at this lab at the University of Michigan Medical School, and I just kept running up against this problem over and over again, which is that we all thought of the brain essentially as a computer. We thought of it as a sense-making apparatus that inducted data from the world outside and then crunched that data and used that data to draw representations and to make decisions and do things like that. And while that was definitely true of certain parts of the brain, such as the visual cortex, other parts of the brain that works for quite nicely, there were lots of other parts of the brain that I was working on that that just didn't work at all. And I realized that those parts of the brain were using things like emotion and narrative um, and other kinds of processes, which couldn't be easily reduced to logic and computation. And so I thought um, that I would leave the lab briefly and go to Yale to study literature, because I thought that would be a good place to study narrative and emotion and how those things fit together. And I thought that I would then come back to the lab with that information and then kind of continue doing research. But instead what happened was um, that I got to Yale and I realized that actually people in literature departments don't really study narrative at all. That in fact, they use a lot of the same methods that are used in computer science and other places. And so a lot of the tools that I was expecting to exist in literature departments didn't exist. And that kind of took me on this sort of strange odyssey, which, um, as you can tell from my bio, has carried me through Hollywood and Silicon Valley, um, and most recently working with the special operations community and a lot of um, business programs and even hedge funds to kind of tackle this problem, which I guess you could think about as how does the brain handle the fact that actually um, it does not have enough data most of the time to understand the world. It does not have enough data to make decisions, logical decisions. And actually really what makes the human brain special is its ability to act in uncertainty, its ability not to predict the future, but to make the future, to create the future, um, and to use other sorts of interesting skills, some of which are emotional and narrative to function. So, that is kind of how I ended up doing the things that I do. It's mostly just an attempt to flesh out the complexities of the human brain and go beyond our current dogma that the brain can be entirely reduced to computation, or if it can't be reduced to computation, that the answer has to be in something magical like consciousness or emergent properties. And instead to kind of find and identify some of the mechanical ways that our brain could be intelligent that are non-computational. So that's kind of the broad thing, and we can go into any of the individual stuff that, that interests you the most. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, I'm not sure if you are prepared like a summary of the study, or um, if you want to go ahead and just answer questions. Well, I can very happily summarize the study. Um, so the top line of the study is that the way in which creativity training works now. Um, so basically, there's a few different views on creativity in general. One view is that it simply cannot be trained or taught at all. And it's a kind of intrinsic quality. Some people are just born creative. Um, it's an almost magical, supernatural thing. Uh, there's another group of people um, who think that creativity can be trained, and those individuals form broadly a field that's usually known now as creativity studies. And the big origin of modern creativity studies dates back 
about 70 years um, to a researcher known as uh, Joy Paul Guilford, who was an Air Force colonel in World War II, who was basically tasked with solving the problem of why is it that some people are more creative flyers than others? And he had this intuition, which was that creativity could be reduced to logic. And what that led him to do was come up with this idea that he called divergent production, which we now call divergent thinking. And it's basically this idea that creativity comes from mix and matching uh, a wide variety of different ideas from different semantic and symbolic sets. So, you know, if you have um, in one side of your brain a set that's full of colors and on the other side of your brain you have um, a set that's filled with animals, you could say, oh, I'm going to do red cow or white cow or blue cow or green cow. And that kind of process is broadly divergent thinking. Well, it turns out um, that even though divergent thinking is the way that creativity is most commonly trained now uh, in schools, in business programs, in the governments, uh, armed forces, all these places, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It turns out it doesn't work. Um, it's also, I should say, the basis of design thinking, so the Stanford D School, things like that. It doesn't work, and you can go through the paper and we kind of list all these studies, which are not ours, which have shown for years that it doesn't really work. Um, and what we show in the paper is that there's a different way of, of generating creativity, um, which doesn't use any of the same mechanisms as divergent thinking, and that we have had success with in a bunch of business schools, like at the University of Chicago, and also in the uh, US government, including um, some branches of special operations. So that's kind of the top line, is that we say that divergent thinking, which is the way that creativity is trained now, um, doesn't seem to be working, so we come up with an alternative that seems to be having some success. Yeah, you um, you basically mentioned in the beginning this paradox that I think it's really interesting that young children have a very imaginatively creative thinking, but then on the other hand, um, the database, I guess, um, thinking is where the young kids then uh, underperform so um could you like how do you um like do you leverage uh the child um like thinking basically uh, to uh, recreate that in adults yeah so that's the basic idea we start with this paradox which is that we're told that the main engine of creativity is divergent thinking which is a logic process and like all logical processes, it gets better the more rational you are and the more memory you have. And it turns out the children, of course, are not especially logical, nor do they have as much memory as adults do. And yet they consistently outperform on all these kinds of imagination and creativity tests. So we were wondering, well, what's going on? Is there this non-logical process? And it turns out that researchers have known for years, going back to people like Anna Kraft, there's a whole series of these researchers who we mentioned in the paper, largely women, I should say, and largely they do childhood research, so their work has been somewhat ma marginalized. But they show that children engage in something that's often known as possibility thinking, or what you would call narrative cognition or story thinking, which is basically having imaginative stories in your head. And a simple way that you do that is through something known as counterfactual thinking, where you change one 
fact about the world, and you say, what would happen if humans were all penguins? Or what would happen if rain went up? Or what would happen if trees were blue? Or something like that. And then you start to play forward the consequences of that. And that involves a process known as causal reasoning, which is something that is non-computational. Um, computers and logic in general use what's known as correlational thinking. And so this is an example of a, the kind of basic mechanism that children seem to be using, which is not employed in divergent thinking. And we go on in the paper to show that if you think about creativity in terms of counterfactual thinking, causal thinking, uh, story thinking, all these kinds of alternatives, it proves highly generative and is very rapidly able to help you solve problems and innovate. So there came this... I heard on the radio, I didn't dig too much, um, like too deep into it on, on NPR, that actually a new study showed that the earlier you put kids into a systematic education, pre-K from four or three-year-olds, where you kind of already very systematically teach them in a very systematic way and not like story and play based so much anymore, that it's actually a bad for later on um, performance in education. Is there any test or did you look into the more we basically make it just repeat numbers instead of having free play, the less creative they get? Yes, yeah, so that study, which is a study that I'm obsessed with. <laughs> so yes, that study shows that when you drill kids in, in what we would consider to be critical thinking, logic skills, a lot of the, the stuff they did in that pre-K curriculum was handwriting skills and basically early semiotic practice. It shows that it makes the kids less successful. And that actually pairs with a, with a ton of research that has shown that kids start to become far less creative around the age of eight or nine, the more school that they have. And that progressively, the more schooling we have, the less creative we become in general. So there's a lot of good studies that show that if you have, if you go through um, a bachelor's or a master's in engineering, for example, you get less and less and less and less creative. And this is a problem for a lot of reasons, one of which is just that creativity isn't just a source of innovation, it's also a source of psychological resilience. The more creative you are, the more that you see problems in your life as opportunities as opposed to a sign that you've done something wrong or somebody else has done something wrong. So the more creative you are, the less likely you are to get frustrated, angry, um, sort of self-defeating. So there is a ton of work, to your point, that shows that the more that we're doing this logic-based work with kids, the more it's inhibiting their creativity and the more it's driving up burnout and anxiety. The problem is that the alternative that people often suggest to this logic-based training is what you said, which is just play. They say, well, why don't we just let kids play in school instead of having this logical training? And the problem with that, as you can imagine, is, well, if you're going to allow kids to play, we don't really need school. Um, kids can play outside of school. And so the question becomes, could we give them training that is not play, that is rigorous and methodical, but is not logic-based and increases their creativity and increases their resilience? And that's the training that we have developed. You know, you can read about it in the article. You can also read in terms of the field book that we've prepared for the, the U.S. Army. And, you know, that training, um, as we've demonstrated through our studies with the military, does encourage psychological resilience, encourages all these things, but is also highly rigorous. So the idea basically is to say, what if we could go back to the way we were as children and then develop that? not just by playing around randomly, but by growing intentionally 
the parts of our childhood brain that make us imaginative, that make us resilient. And that's the beginnings of the program that we've sketched out in the paper. Dr. Fletcher, it was very interesting when you were describing um, the way that a child would think it remind you know, <laughs> what if rain went up? Um, that was a really interesting way to put it. And it reminded me of the way that robots are training each other in locomotion, so movement. Um, robots are training each other to move in ways that have not been conceived by humans. So I wonder if it's not a function of the constructs of these institutions, the goals, as you mentioned, like, you know, kids were just allowed to play it and schools would not be necessary. So maybe there's a, there's a bottleneck there in terms of the way that we're structuring these institutions. I think, okay. I, I, I think so. And I was going to say in terms of the robot example, I mean, I'm obsessed with robots as well. And I'm obsessed with robots because robots um, are about movement and are about action. And that's also the way that narrative and counterfactual thinking and these other mechanisms that I've been talking about work. And so, you know, there are these, there's this um, sort of odd but sort of fascinating early history of AI, which some of you might be aware of, called cybernetics, back before the, the development of, of, of kind of our modern understanding of AI as, as being driven um, by computers. And cybernetics had a lot of these ideas that basically you could build moving robotic systems that just acted through various kinds of equilibrium. And it was a little wacky, but it also, I think, pointed to this fact that you can learn through the body, you can learn through movement, you can learn through action. There's um, a lot of motor intelligence, is what we would call it. A lot of dancers, a lot of athletes have this incredible creativity that is non-conscious, that they're not aware of, that just seems to emerge spontaneously, where they act and react in these ways. And I think it does come down to creating environments um, that are not structured in terms of these um, specific logical outputs, but nevertheless have problems and outcomes and some kind of parameters, like a dance or like a sporting match or um, like an engineering problem or like, you know, some kind of task that robots might have. And ourselves being more creative in the way that we create these institutions and allowing more of that creativity to come out that way. I think it's, it's Victoria. also in, oh, go ahead, Dennis. Sure. Um, yeah, along the same lines of, you know, maybe semantics, what we had mentioned before with the term interdisciplinary, the terms play and not play. Oops, I see the red bar. Hopefully it's not real. Um, the terms play and not play, those, who is defining those? Because, um, so I, I work in arts education and, and, um, through really any curriculum, I work in sciences and, and literature and really ac any academic subject I do arts integration with and allow kids, it allows kids to explore the theme through through different art forms. And, and that could be movement or theater arts or visual arts, whatever. Um, but what, what I do notice is what you had asserted that kids, when they're kindergartners, I, I say that they seem like small intellectuals and beyond kindergarten, things shift. But, but what is also true is that if we, if we um, sort of dissolve the terms play and not play or play and work or play and convention or schooling or learning, whatever, um, if you have a child who's helping you build 
a cabinet or kids helping, you know, even toddlers helping in the kitchen, then that thought process seems to go along the lines of more of what you're trying to describe, where you take a, a real world situation that's that's directed, that is even goal oriented, but but include in that the creativity of a very young mind. And then if that's something that you're able to replicate in a school situation, then that I think would would really have engagement and and would foster the kind of creativity that you're talking about. Um, well, yeah, I think that's brilliant, and I completely agree. And we're trying to do a summer camp here, actually, in my local school district, where we do exactly that. And to be clear, what I mean about play, when we use play in a colloquial sense, it can mean a lot of things. Um, and you know, typically, what it means in a kind of um, computer science context or a philosophical context is a fairly specific thing. It means um, a, the kind of random movement of ideas or something like that. So it's very invested in this idea of randomness. The term that you used, which is experiment, is an idea that comes a lot, up a lot colloquially in kinds of in play. And that's something that I really believe in. Experiment is, is attempting an action and then seeing what the result of that action is and then going through feedback in pursuit of something. And you know what's wonderful about a lot of childhood experiments is you don't have a clear objective in mind. You're just trying things to see what happens. Then based on what happens, you try other things. And so it's this very open-ended exploratory process that's not random. Um, it is driven by feedback and is driven by action. So I would completely support the idea that experiment is very, very important. Um, and I'm simply using the word play in a kind of technical sense, just to kind of make that point clear. Um, but if we want to use play in a non-technical sense, I'm of course happy to, to, to include that um, as something fruitful for creativity. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you pointed out in the article also that um, basically the data-driven or computational um, uh, driven um, method versus the narrative machinery that the narrative machinery outperforms and is not so fragile. Um, I think that is a, that is a very interesting point and um, is it basically, is, is the IQ an outdated assessment from your perspective then? Because basically if creativity um, increases, maybe the IQ um, level, like does it change with your training? Did you, did you ever look at that? Are there any correlations? Yes, right. Um, well, I'm going to be honest. We we don't look at IQ. You could probably guess that I'm I'm not a huge fan of IQ in the way that it was originally intended. So the way that IQ is originally intended for people to, who don't know is what's known as a kind of G factor or general factor. The idea that all intelligence can be distilled to a single measurement. And in the case of IQ, that is this logic-based um, approach to quantify people's intelligence. So basically your ability to remember things or to succeed at logic puzzles or do math equations and things like that. So I'm not a huge fan of the idea that all intelligence is IQ. Um, I am, however, a fan of the idea that IQ is a kind of intelligence 
just in the same way that I think that computation is a kind of intelligence, all I'm saying is I think there's other kinds of intelligence, um, or specifically that I think there is another kind. There might be third or fourth, I don't know what those are. Um, I'm not someone who particularly believes, for example, in emotional intelligence, to be clear. Um, but I do think there's this other kind of intelligence, which I talk about in the article, which evolved because most of what was happening as early neurons emerged was that there was just not a lot of data that they were able to process. They themselves just, you know, they were very small networks. They didn't have a lot of data. And the environment was changing very rapidly. And so it wasn't a, a space in which logic was that useful because logic becomes useful the more data you have and the more stable the environment is. I mean, that's why logistical systems work is because you're able to kind of impose this stability and you're able to have um, transparency of the system to itself. And so, you know, what happened with a lot of these early neurons is they had to cope in these, these volatile, uncertain environments. And so what they did was essentially they improvised actions. They tried, they, they thrust, or they, they spun, or they contracted a muscle, or they did those kinds of things. And they saw what seemed to work, and then they kind of repeated those actions. And so the difference between that second kind of intelligence and the first kind of intelligence is the second kind of intelligence can work with no data or low data because um, it can spontaneously create a future as opposed to trying to predict what the best choice would be in a future. It makes the future by acting, by seizing the initiative. And that second form of intelligence, it turns out, co-evolved in the human brain with the first kind of intelligence. And if you look at the way that the human brain is set up, we have areas of the human brain that are highly logical, that use symbolic, semiotic, sense-making apparatuses. Like I've already talked about the visual cortex, but there's other areas of the cortex that uh, allow us to do logic and math and things like that. Um, but there are all these motor regions and a lot of non-conscious uh, motor regions in the brain that do the other kind of intelligence, that kind of low data um, act and then adjust to feedback form of intelligence. And that other form of intelligence is what allows you to plan and plot and do other things that involve narrative. Narrative is very famously very data light. Uh, you can tell a story um, on a few facts. This is why people are often skeptical of narratives because they don't involve all the facts. Um, in fact, they oftentimes consciously exclude facts for the purposes of narrative simplicity and scale. So um, it's that other kind of intelligence that's connected to narrative um, that I sort of am interested in. So that doesn't preclude IQ, but it's different. And it's that other kind of intelligence, as I said, that has made my research interesting to people, for example, in the special operations community, um, because if you're working in fast-changing environments where you still need to act and do things, so you know, if you imagine deploying to Poland, for example, at this moment, and you're dealing with a kind of refugee crisis there, you're dealing with a kind of instability on the Ukrainian border, you don't know what Russia might do, all these kinds of things up in the air, how do you train people to survive in those environments? Um, and you do so by encouraging not IQ, but this other form of, of, of intelligence, um, which allows you to kind of plan and initiate action. So you, you have here, like you write about three categories to build up the narrative technique, um, world building, perspective shifting, and um, action generating. Where do you see, like, what is the hardest part for people to be trained? Like, is there more resistance than one of those three while you teach creativity? And then is there, is there a difference between people? I don't know if anyone looked into it, but is there a difference between people that have mental health disorders such as depression 
Like, is there a higher resistance or low resistance for it, any of those? Okay, that's really interesting. So I'm going to be honest. I do a lot of work outside of this research um, on mental health. And so that's an area, you know, I work a lot with social workers and psychiatrists. We did not combine the two forms of research directly here, but I can say that optimism is pretty strongly correlated with creativity. So people who have optimism generally tend to be more creative because creativity generally involves a kind of almost a leap of faith because you have to, you have to try something that no one else has ever tried before. And with really creative things, you never actually know if they're going to work or not. If something um, was a kind of logical deduction, you could tell ahead of time if it was going to work. So in a logic-based system, you can know if something is going to work. That's why Einstein was famously so sure that he had, uh, he had predicted the bending of light. But if you're dealing with um, this kind of creativity, you can't predict. And so optimism helps you because it allows you to take that jump. As far as what's hard for people, it's not so much world building or perspective shifting or action generation, because as I talk about in the paper, those are all components of, of storytelling, um, which people are, are all naturally, generally fairly good at. So we're pretty good at um, imagining characters, imagining what a character might do, imagining kind of how a world might be different. You know, if you ever have ever written any fantasy or sci-fi or anything like that, you're good at all those things. What's hard for people is to do it rigorously. And so I can give you a kind of a few examples of what I mean by the kind of training that we do. The first thing is, is that in order to do something like counterfactual thinking or um, in some way changing the current environment, you have to notice an anomaly. You have to notice something weird or unusual in your space. So you have to go around um, and notice things that stick out and are strange. And it turns out that most people that we work with are, are very bad at doing that because school has trained us to generalize and abstract. And so anytime we see something weird, we either dismiss it and we say, oh, it's not important. It's an aberration. It's a strange thing. It doesn't make sense to us. Or we in some way try and abstract and normalize it. And so getting people to notice things that are actually weird <laughs> and fixate on them is quite hard. We've noticed that. If you've been raised in suburbia, for example, where everything is aggressively manicured to be exactly the same. Uh, you're, you're taught to see things that are, that are odd um, as a mistake or an error, and we have to kind of shift that thinking. So that's an example of one thing that's hard. Another thing that people often struggle with is um, just changing a single detail and playing it forward. So, you know, if I said to you something like, well, you know, um, uh, rain is going to go up from now on, People might jump from that to say, oh, well, there's going to be other kinds of weather problems as well and kind of free associate in all these directions. And instead we have to say, no, actually if rain would go up, what would be the next obvious consequence of that? Well, the first thing is there would be no rain going down, so there would be no rain on the ground. What problems would that cause if there was no rain on the ground? And so you really have to constrain people and get them to focus tightly as opposed to kind of hopping all over the place because the more they hop all over the place, um, the less they're actually kind of doing that deep work of disciplining their minds to be creative in a kind of methodical sense that is what we find helps with problem solving. You would walk on clouds all day. It would be amazing. Yeah, I was asking more in the... It's my last question and then I'll let other people speak. Um, I was asking more in the terms of that um, there were kind of data points or people, I don't know, I read some articles where people said that 
people that strongly believe in like conspiracy theories and so on, especially during COVID. Um, it was basically people that maybe were struggling with mental health uh, quite a lot. And that's why I thought um, that maybe people with mental health issues have a problem of keep building up the world because you also have to have this ability in order to uh, check like uh, reality, right? You have to keep doing uh -huh. this. If you don't update your um, system, like you will go further and further away from, from actual reality. That's why I was asking. Well, let me say something that you might think is crazy. So I'm not sure that I believe that humans have access to reality. Um, I mean, I, I think that um, I think that we do a very good job of of modeling useful and plausible worlds in our head um, that are successful at helping us navigate our lives. But the extent to which that actually maps over reality, I just think epistemologically, it's unlikely that we as humans are ever going to know for a fact how close our mental models are to the real world. And I do notice that we spend a lot of time now in the media talking about facts and things like that. And I'm not a huge fan of that way of thinking. I'm more a fan of the way of thinking about what's healthy and useful for people as opposed to what's true. To the idea that you were saying though, which I think is correct about the problem with a certain kind of way of thinking in terms of conspiracy theories and whatnot. So first of all, it should be said that conspiracy theories are usually very creative. Um, they're usually highly creative. Usually once you get inside them, you realize how creative they are. And there's not uh, a ton of difference in terms of the creativity applied to a conspiracy theory as to a good fantasy novel or a good science fiction novel. I mean, they're usually fairly rigorously thought out. They're very expansive. They involve a lot of elements. They're surprise twists. So there's a lot of creativity in them. The problem is, is that they are presented themselves as true. And because they're presented as true, it stops you from having other creative ideas. And so the system then overall becomes less creative. And I think that what we see with conspiracy theories is the same thing we see with religions. I mean, religions are, are themselves a kind of conspiracy theory. They're a theory about, you know, something, some supernatural thing that apparently exists above us and is controlling our lives and has control over everything. And religions over time quite rapidly narrow and exclude alternatives. And it's also the same thing in general with um, certain approaches to science that are um, closed. So certain kinds of positivism, for example, um, can insist on, you know, this is the way that things are, other things are not true. And so the main thing that I think about from a human perspective is we want to always have a diversity of possibilities. We always want to be open to other people's experiences. We always want to know that other cultures might see the world differently from us and that's not wrong that there might be these different explanations and that, you know, different religions can be fundamentally distinct and coexist. So the main thing that I always like to promote is the idea of a kind of library of worlds um, and the idea that really what we're here on earth to do is share our imaginative universes with each other, both as a source of pleasure, but also as a way of sometimes being helpful because someone who sees the world differently from you might have an answer to something that you don't have in your world system. So that's the only thing I would, I would say about that. And I guess I should maybe also just say very briefly that, um, you know, paranoia isn't necessarily indicative of mental illness and mental illness isn't necessarily indicative of paranoia. 
Um, you know, a lot of us can experience paranoia and therefore be prone to conspiracy theories without being mentally ill. And there are, of course, many different types of things that we consider to be um, mental illness, which, which themselves don't involve uh, paranoia. Yeah, I like your answer. Um, I want to point out the book, uh, Case Against Reality. Uh, it's a really good book that basically, I, uh, you know, was written by a famous mathematician and uh, just argues to say that evolution um, actually goes further away from reality and closer to just what makes you fitter. Yes. And, yeah. That, exactly. that, that nails that nails my point of view pretty exactly. Yeah, it's a great book. Mm. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I think Dennis flashed this mic one. Dr. Shah, please go ahead. Uh, so, uh, uh, first of all, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I support the idea that you know uh, more should be done to, uh, you know, uh, uh, help people to be more creative, uh, and and also so thanks for coming here to talk about this topic today. Um, on the other hand, I think it's very difficult to. Uh, you know, to uh, teach creativity. And, and why am I saying that? It's because, you know, so I think, uh, like, you know, let's take the example of uh, children as an, uh, you know, again, that example. So when, you know, you live uh, in a, an environment or, you know, when you are in a, a you know, um, in a setting where you are not bound in any rules then it's very easy to be creative. You know, you can think up of any possibility, you know, randomly, right? You can just do things randomly and you, you know, you explore things in all different directions. I think that explains the fact, you know, why children, you know, uh, when they are not, you know, um, you know, when they are still young and when they ha haven't grown up, you know, to higher and higher education, they are very creative. But like, you know, the more education they have, the more they will discover that, you know, you are actually bound by, you know, a set, you know, of very rigid rules, you know, and the more you, the more educated you are, the more you realize that, and to be creative, it becomes very, very difficult, because you need, you know, to study very deeply, to have a very deep understanding of, you know, of, 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 of a problem, um, and so, and so that's you know that's why I you know that's why that's the reason that makes me think that is very very difficult to teach uh, creativity. Uh, yeah, so I yeah that that's just my comment. Yeah, I would like to hear you know what you think. Uh, well, well, first of all, I agree broadly with what you're saying, um, and I think it's also perhaps worth drawing a distinction between creativity and innovation. I mean, innovation is creativity that works. And I think part of what you're saying is that children have all these wonderful ideas, but because they also aren't aware of some of the actual challenges in life, that it's actually a lot harder to get those ideas to work than they imagine. And so a lot of their creativity does not result in innovation. Um, and, you know, vice versa, you can get innovation with a fairly low amount of creativity because if you understand exactly how something works, then even just a small change in that can produce big breakthroughs. Um, and so I completely agree broadly with what you're saying. What I would also say, however, is that there are numerous ex uh, examples through human history. We could, you know, go through some of the big ones, whether it's Einstein or Van Gogh or Marie Curie or Shakespeare or whomever, 
of people who have known an enormous amount and have also completely radically overturned the field that they're working in in various ways. So it is clearly possible to um, be highly creative and also know a lot. And so the question becomes, are those individuals just geniuses? Um, do they, did they just kind of possess some extraordinary capacity or is it just lucky that they happen to see something at the right angle? And that is always, of course, you know, something that's hard to disprove. But what we can say is that, you know, we, we show this through our study, that ordinary people working in highly technical fields can become better at solving problems in their fields through certain types of creative training. So we know, even though I would never claim to have trained an Einstein or a Darwin or a Van Gogh, we know that this training can improve, um, you know, regular people. So, you know, engineers, uh, successful engineers, engineers at major Silicon Valley firms or, or major entrepreneurs or, or as I said, some of the, the most elite um, special forces units in the United States. We know that training can help them improve their creativity, even though they know a lot. So while I agree with you that it's unlikely that we're going to train everyone in our world to overturn everything all the time because, you know, that's, it's hard to do, we can, I think, make some gains. And I think over time those gains can be cumulative. And I do think that if you just look back even over the last 100 or 200 years of, of human existence, it's pretty extraordinary how much we have created and how much we have innovated. And there's no reason to think that we couldn't um, continue at that pace or, or faster if, uh, if we tried. Uh, yeah, so yes, I agree that, you know, I agree that, uh, uh, you know, some creativity could be gen and some of it could be fostered. Uh, what I meant exactly is, uh, I think it's, it's difficult and the more, you know, the more uh, higher level kind of creativity that you want to teach, the more difficult it will be, like you said, you know, like if you want to teach the kind of, uh, uh, you know, creativity that Einstein had, you know, or other famous scientists had, I think is, uh, is maybe like, I think it's, it's very difficult or maybe impossible, you know, because at that point it's, uh, again, you know, it's about the individual, you know, making a very deep, you know, study of some subject, you know, understanding all possible limitations and angle, and then, and then, you know, be able to produce, uh, propose, you know, something which is, truly, you know, uh, 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 you know, that, you know, something that is truly new and at the same time, you know, is uh, uh, feasible, right? Because, you know, if you propose something that is very creative but it's not feasible at all, then it, it really doesn't mean anything. Well, yes, no, I agree with you. And maybe the last thing I'll say on this point is, um, you know, the way I got into doing this method is by working with some of the most successful people in their fields, whether those fields were Hollywood. So I worked a lot in Hollywood. I've worked a lot, as I said, in Silicon Valley um, and also in special forces, special operations and, and business as well. And so this method was actually developed not to train, um, you know, just undergraduates. This method was trained to basically, you could think of it almost as Olympic athlete training, is, is I was kind of brought in because these people were the, the fastest people in the world and we had to make them a tenth of a second faster. And so that's where the training came about. And it's worked across all these different fields. So it hasn't been field specific. 
So there does seem to be something general and, 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 and broad about this kind of training. And I think my sense is that other successful kinds of creativity training would be the same as well, is that you could kind of move them across fields and that they would work for experts. But of course, I agree with your, your overall point, um, which is that it's very hard and we don't want to, we don't want to um, imply otherwise. And that's why we want to celebrate and cherish moments when we do have huge creativity. Um, and, you know, we, we, we want to, 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 to treasure those moments um, for, for the wonders they are. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's uh, very well said, yeah. Thank you. Dr. Shaw, you had some questions or comments? You can go ahead, Dennis. I will ask after Sure, you. thank you. Um, so, Dr. Fletcher, you had mentioned um, that the no optimism and no creativity, there was a correlation there. I wondered if the inverse was true. If, if there, there was no creation or art, was there no optimism? Because I feel like this can be seen in, uh, well, maybe not optimism, art, but you know, if you were to correlate music practice, that correlates pretty highly with higher math ability. Well, um, first of all, you and I are thinking exactly on the same wavelength. I, uh, I, I, I believe, but I've never done this study, but I do believe that, the, that optimism encourages creativity and that creativity encourages optimism um, for a lot of the reasons that um, you know, you've indicated. And there is a ton of work, which um, I cannot claim to have done myself, but which is all over the literature, that creativity increases self-efficacy. So the more creative you are, the more you believe that you can do things because you believe that you can figure out new ways to overcome obstacles. And so there's a lot of, a lot of good data to, to support what your, what your intuition is. And, and I would be very surprised if it wasn't the case that creativity supported optimism in the same way that optimism supports creativity. I will, I will say, I'll speak for myself. Um, the more I do creative arts, the more optimistic I find uh, my outlook to be. So that's anecdotal. Uh, we'll leave it at that. And then another question I had was you had sort of looked at it in terms of reality versus healthy thinking. And I just wonder how gravity factors into that because you, you can have a healthy thought, but if you try to test that against gravity and your thought fails like you know you just you have to deal with back to reality <laughs> i see so to be clear um when i'm talking about the idea that um what i mean by healthy thought is a thought that allows you to to grow and achieve the things that you want to achieve um and so obviously if your thought process was there's no such thing as gravity so i'm going to go jump off the roof and fly to mars at which point you fell off the roof and broke your arm that would not be a healthy <laughs> mode of of dealing um so what i'm saying when i when i talk about reality um as something that i don't think humans have access to i mean that in the kind of capital r sense of reality uh i mean i think we have good heuristic models of the way the world works i think we have a good heuristic model of the fact that there is something that keeps us stuck to the ground and that when things are dropped they fall to the ground um i do think it becomes more complicated when we start to ask ourselves well, what actually is gravity those kinds of things you know those deeper reality questions that was more where i was going in terms of world building and the ultimate laws that cause our universe to be the way that it is i think that's quite difficult for us to have confidence that we know um, but we're certainly pretty good at, at modeling 
how things work as long as the system doesn't change. And certainly gravity has not changed as far as we can tell for at least 500 years. So I think we have some confidence that it's gonna be around with us for a while and that healthy thinking should involve, um, you know, 9.8 meters a second and, and all the rest of it. I understand the distinction now, thank you. <laughs> Dr. Thoth? Yes, so welcome, Angus. My uh, question is about the concept of the deep creativity which can be related with, uh, I mean, machine learning and deep machine learning. And recently, because you just mentioned in your paper that we have a technological innovation and uh, there might be a possibility for transferring this kind of formulation that they just, as an algorithm, they just came up with for the transhumanism and those kind of things. I was just wondering to know your opinion around this topic. Thank you. So um, a lot of people think that I'm a little bit nuts for my views about AI. And so I, I certainly expect that many people here will think I'm a little nuts about AI. I don't think that AI, as it's run on computers, can be creative in the way that humans are, because I don't think that, I think that AI has a hardware limit that forces it to be unable to do anything really other than divergent thinking. And a lot of the kinds of processes that I'm talking about that humans can run, I just don't think can run on computer hardware. I do think, however, that there's other hardware that can be built to do those other kinds of processes. And I think in the future, we're going to see something that is a thinking machine that is more than a computer that pairs some of the mechanisms of the human brain along with those mechanisms that exist in logic gates and the kind of NAND-NOR operands that are going on in computers. So if you want to think of transhumanism as that kind of future technology, which we don't have yet, um, married with humans, yes, I do think you could have deeper creativity. Um, and I do think that computers themselves are very creative when it comes to divergent thinking. And we can see that computers actually have the ability to be much more creative with divergent thinking than humans do. So they're much better at mixing and matching from semantic sets. That wa that's why computers are better, for example, at making up faces, you know, um, digital faces, um, kind of digital art, things like that. Computers are probably going to beat us at. They're probably going to be able to beat us at certain kinds of short poetry because they're just better at word rearrangement than humans are. Um, so in all those ways, computers can definitely out-create us, and you could imagine a kind of transhumanism that, 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 that benefited from that. But I think if you really want to get all of the creativity um, that life seems to have, it would require something more than just kind of hooking a human up to a computer. I think we'd need another kind of machine as well. Well, there's a famous example by uh, Garrett uh, Weissman, uh, the astronaut who, um, when he was up on the space station trying to assemble two components, the heat difference uh, uh, between Earth and orbit caused the pieces not to fit together. And his creative moment where he kind of said that this is an area where AI would struggle perhaps today is uh, he immediately thought, okay, well, I'm going to cover this part with my hand so it creates a shadow so it does cool down. And that way I'll be able to get the two pieces to come together. So it's quite literally like just put the two sticks together to get the banana. But in this case, it required some knowledge about temperature and fluctuations of length of metals. So... Yeah, and it required causal thinking and causal reasoning as well. Um, and, you know, I work a fair amount in AI. I have, a, I have an article out last month in Wired with Eric Larson, who's a pretty big AI guy. Um, and so I do work a fair amount with machine learning systems and whatnot. And, you know, those systems generally rely on a kind of brute force approach to things. 
And in that particular instance, you wouldn't really have the opportunity for a brute force approach. You'd have to just kind of actually come up with a single hypothesis that relied on a kind of deep kind of causal speculation that allowed you to kind of solve the problem. So I, I do agree that AI would be unlikely to have, uh, to, to have, have hit that answer. Although there is, a, I forget the team, but they are making like a simulator that runs parallel with the robot and it simulates the environment using something like a game engine. So it can run many of those kinds of simulations, of course, uh, computationally that becomes quite expensive, but to test out variations and, and things like that, I think it is feasible some in some instances to some level of accuracy and representation to simulate things. But I, I'm curious if that would be kind of the way that robots make up that difference, the, the magic kind of the, that humans seem to have sometimes. Oh, yeah. So um, one thing I should say, I mean, this is kind of the work that I've been doing with hedge funds is, is once you give a computer a model, it can execute that model much faster than a human can. So if you, if you, if you say, oh, here's how I think things are going or here's, here's I've, I've set up the parameters for the simulation, the computer can then run that much, much faster than you. But the computer is itself unable. Um, I mean, I would encourage people to read Judea Pearl on this. Um, sometimes people think that he's a bit of a lunatic too, but he's, he's quite brilliant. He's uh, retired now at UCLA, um, and he's the inventor of the do calculus and things like that. Um, and you know, he, he sort of points out why it is technically that uh, computers themselves can't do causal reasoning, but once you do the causal reasoning for the computers, they're much, much faster at computing the results than a human would be. So exactly what's the place of creativity between input and output in machine learning, because input can be something like a perception and output can be concepts. So where do you see the creativity in between? So, um, so yes, so I mean, if we think computationally, yes, absolutely, you can have concepts and things like that. But the, what I kind of talk about in the article is there's other ways to think about creativity other than concepts. And you could think about it as, as actions. And actions are ontologically different from concepts. Concepts are timeless things. Actions involve a cause and effect. Um, and so, you know, if you're thinking about creativity in a dynamic system, a lot of times what you want is that action creativity, that ability to think from cause to effect or from effect back to cause. Whereas if you want creativity, for example, in math, or a semiotic system, then that can be achieved through concepts like you're talking about. So these are just kind of different ontological units that I just don't think can be reduced to one another mechanically. Oh, so that's like the including the motor cortex in a machine where we're trying to get some sort of engagement because that would be the kind of behavior or action that it's able to exhibit. And I think uh, there, there was some promising work with, I think, uh, guidance programs and other things like that where... Uh, giving a positive feedback loop to a system, it could stabilize, for example, the the flight path of a drone. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, before we go any further, Dr. Fletcher, I just want to check in with you in terms of your availability. How much longer do we have the honor of your presence? Um, well, I was scheduled till seven, but um, would you, do you guys like a few more minutes or what would you like? What would be happy for you guys? Uh, it's uh, it's really up to to you. I'm sure we have lots of questions. We have some new uh, some new people who have questions too, so we could definitely keep it going. But if um, if you got to run, let's run. Or maybe one last question. What do you think? Well, why don't we do 15 more minutes? Do you want to do that? That yes, would be yes. Fine. We can, yeah. we can 15 keep, minutes. We can keep extending out as long as you like, and 15 minutes for now. So um, we had uh, everyone else who was already on stage are. 
we finish the questions? Can we move on to Pro and Mehmet? Okay, seeing no objections, Pro, uh, and then Mehmet, go for it. Hey, how you doing? Um, great talk, great, great stuff. I've been reading the uh, the link as it's been posted. Um, yeah, I'm very interested in this as a mathematician who's also a rapper. <laughs> um, I think about lots of these topics constantly. Um, currently, I'm doing a, a project with somebody I met here on, on Clubhouse, actually, who's similar to myself. He's also a rapper and an educator. And we do a lot of these talks in math rooms that we have on here. And uh, we just decided to do approach this creativity issue from the standpoint of us both being introverts which I also think is another interesting dynamic. We, we say social introvert, creative extrovert. <laughs> um, and we, we often find ourselves getting conversations about, you know, neural networks and so forth and talking about the almost palpable feeling that we have that we've done some intense wiring, <laughs> you know, like ahead of time to get those disparate regions of our brain kind of wired up. And you can almost palpably feel it when we're, making a connection that we think quote unquote normally wouldn't happen. And then it finds its way into our lyricism. And the thing that distinguishes both of us is uh, it just, and why we're so interested in this is I, I say, you know, I'm an associate professor of mathematics. I work heavily in quantum as well. So I'm really into some of those things that you were talking about, like the deep, what people would say deep uh, study that maybe you would be able to access better if you had more creativity and looking at sort of the paradox that you put forth in the paper. We, we think about it from this standpoint of as both of us as educators who are maybe, maybe over credited for our education ability because of the thing that we bring different to it, which is creativity. But both of us are like far more superior artists <laughs> than we are actually as educators. And we wonder if not, if, if studies have been done, similar to what it seems like that you're getting at, is creativity truly enhanced um, it, by exposing yourself to different ideas? In other words, I, I say a lot of times something like this. I don't know your take on it, but I'd be interested to hear someone who's really done the deep dive. In other words, like I say creativity to me is almost overblown in terms of the magic and mysticism we give to it. I, I will say, like, because I've pushed myself to be what we would both call world-class lyricists, we're, we're honestly world-class in terms of what we both do, which is the interesting thing. We found each other here. Like, like we don't play around. We've been doing it for, like, 30 years. And we say being at that level in terms of what we dedicate to the craft, is it not plausible to say that the creativity itself is really just the awareness of the of the the pool of, of resources that we have at our fingertips because of the dedication that we've put into learning all these different kinds of things and ideas. And, and, and is it a, a vice versa kind of thing as well, if that makes sense in terms of is one fueling the other as well? Yeah, no, everything you're saying makes sense and is correct. And, you know, first of all, I mean, the main thing I would say just in general about life is if something is true to your experience, it's true to you. So I wouldn't question it. Um, but I think a big part of what you're saying is that, by making the efforts to grow beyond your current perspective so that you're not just doing what you already know, but you're looking maybe to other fields, um, you're looking to other people who know things you don't and you're stepping into their point of view and you're thinking about it from their perspective and how they're thinking about things. 
that is a huge engine of creativity. And in general, what we find, um, and this is true across the board, is that the more that you not only try and kind of become an expert in one thing, but um, try and become uh, an expert in two things, three things, five things, that's where a lot of the creativity comes from because essentially what you're doing is you're, um, you're taking on uh, uh, different roles. And by taking on those, those um, different roles, you're doing that thing we talk about in the paper um, known as perspective shifting. So to kind of use the example of, of rap or something like that, one way to think about rap is, oh, well, I'm just trying to become lyrically inventive. And I just come up, come up with a bunch of different lyrics. Another way to think of it is, well, I'm actually coming up with different roles that I'm playing. I'm actually going to play a different part right now. I'm going to imagine myself as a different person um, with these concerns or these problems. Um, and the more deeply I'm going to go into becoming an artist, the more I'm going to have different personas that I have. And each of those personas is going to um, be smart and intelligent and see things in a different way. And what you're doing there is you're kind of growing your mental library of possibilities. So everything you're saying, I completely agree with. I completely agree that a lot of it comes down to doing the work of actually learning other perspectives. And, you know, that's why people that make an effort to travel broadly travel. If you travel in the way that you don't just kind of go around and try and find the nearest McDonald's, but if you travel to another country and really embrace the culture, embrace the food, embrace the art, all these ways of getting outside your perspective and working to immerse yourself in other perspectives, these are all have been found to be enormous sources of creativity. I just want to say a mathematician and a rapper, hell yeah. Or you could just come to science <laughs> society every day because <laughs> that's all we do. <laughs> we have people from all kinds of fields coming here. No, seriously, since I started this, I have... Like, I read so many different, um, like, work from so many different fields. Uh, I think I never studied so much before. <laughs> so, uh, it's kind of interesting. It makes total sense from my point of view. We were just discussing the correlation between uh, mathematics and musical ability and therefore creativity. I think there's also an example for with music itself, the interplay between the motor cortex and memory recall, the back and forth rapid, hey, I remember a little bit uh, of the next part of the song, and now I remember what my hand has to be or the configuration, whatever the sequence tends to be, and then I keep going. And that interplay, I think, shows a lot of interesting results, at least from my perspective, I've found in a kind of analogous application I've tried to uh, engage in something like, hey, I'm going to try to work on something while I'm also either playing uh, an instrument every five, ten minutes or something. So I'll be doing like some some mathematics or some coding and then I'll play the thing and then I'll come back. And that actually has, has been very much recharging for me. And that kind of, to me, demonstrated the necessity of play. Uh, where you just quite literally play with it like a child would play with it. And that's the the, the best, uh, at least, application that I've, I've come across. But uh, just as a side note, uh, people do claim that they're more creative after an LSD trip, for example, and that tends to be more uh, uh, an artifact of the beholder or the effect of the drug itself. So I think uh, creativity also, like, if we're defining it in terms of like engineering creativity of something that was created, then I think there's uh, definitely uh, objective ways of establishing that. But I'm not sure if we were um, if we were discussing it to that extent.
No, well, look, I agree with everything you're saying. I also agree that people are famously bad at assessing their own levels of creativity. I'm very famously people that assess themselves as being highly creative <laughs> are usually not that creative. And oftentimes people who are very insecure about their levels of creativity turn out to be actually quite creative. Um, it's, a, it, it's a kind of fragile thing there. Um, to, just to pick up on, on a couple of things you said, first of all, um, the example of the musical instruments is a wonderful one, and I completely agree with that because absolutely your motor cortex is in play at the same time as other parts of your brain are in play. And that's where a lot of that creativity comes from. I mean, if you're an experienced musician, you're moving your hands and you're doing a lot of things without even thinking about it actively, and that's those deep motor regions coming together. Um, also, of course, that dynamic of taking a break and doing some music and then coming back to a problem. I mean, of course, this is famously Einstein who had his violin and who would play it all the time. And it's also quite well known that if you really, really tense your mind and you spend a lot of time really working hard on a problem as much as you can, and then you actively rest and relax your mind, a lot of times your best ideas come in that moment of relaxing as the kind of tension is releasing. And that's because um, your motor neurons are, again, are freed up to kind of move in that space, having been kind of tightly locked. And sometimes they come together and find just the perfect answer. So if you can, as much as possible, cycle between periods of intense focus and then active relaxation, that is often a very kind of effective way to, to increase your, uh, your creativity uh, practically. Like, so wouldn't we say that, you know, uh, there's a simple recipe then for creativity. So like we just encourage people, you know, to uh, diversify their learning, you know, explore, you know, uh, more, you know, and then uh, a few simple techniques and that should be the recipe for creativity? Well, I mean, it depends. Uh, but I mean, yes, I do think that um, diversifying is very important. Um, I do think that having some specific techniques that you can apply when you're stuck can be important. But I also think it's important to kind of generally train creativity. I mean, one thing that I often say is that people often only try and increase their creativity when they have a specific problem that they're trying to solve. Um, and that's a little bit like trying to make yourself faster when you're in the middle of running a race already. And really what you should do is you should set aside time every day to try and be creative uh, in areas that don't matter quite as much. Because it turns out that when, you know, there's a sense of emotional urgency about things, that can actually limit your creativity and kind of focus your mind more on short-term solutions as opposed to kind of bigger ones. And so there can be real value in just spending a little time every day or a little time every week trying to solve problems um, in creative ways that you don't actually need to solve. And so that kind of, that kind of basic practice, if you do that, then when you actually need it, you might find yourself faster at solving the problems you actually need to solve. Um, but I do agree that, 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 that uh, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, there's only so many things you can do uh, 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 to increase creativity. And there's always going to be a little part of it that does seem a little magic and mystical because, again, it's taking place in those non-conscious parts of the human brain that our consciousness does not have direct access to. And so the exact mechanism by which an individual creative idea comes to be in any situation um, is always going to be a little bit beyond the bounds of our ability to know. That reminds me of uh, George Harrison, just, just quickly, if I may, it reminds me of uh, what George Harrison once said when he was, uh, you know, driving on his way home from the studio and a song came to him and he would quite uh, funny enough argue with the song and say, look, I was in the studio all day. You could have came to me when I was there, but I can't do anything now. So be more on time next time. <laughs> 
can you suggest a few activities that people could do, like you know, in their time to uh, help them, you know, to increase uh, their creativity? Yeah. So I mean, I actually there's a workbook that I produced for the U.S. Army, which you can actually read. It has 60 activities in it, but um, they basically involve uh, the most key thing you can do um, is to start opening your mind to what we call anomalies or exceptional information, as the military calls it. So going around and emphasizing why things are unique and why that could open up a possibility. And it turns out that, that with adults, adults famously dismiss irregularities or anomalies or eccentricities in their work environment as unimportant. Um, and if you can go around and actually focus on what makes these two people at my job unique, what makes you know, each of them different from each other, how can I see that uniqueness as an opportunity? How can I see this object that I have on my desk as unique? How can I see that as an opportunity? So focusing on unique things and what their opportunities are, as opposed to trying to explain them or rationalize them or see why they came to be, instead see them as possibilities. And then the other thing is that exercise I talked about in terms of counterfactual thinking, where you go around and change one thing in the world, as small a thing as you can, and then you tightly um, spin time forward and say, what would happen as a result of this happening? And that's the kind of thing that you know screenwriters do all the time. And of course, engineers will do when they kind of tweak something. But the more you can do that, just generally, the more you build up those muscles in your head, and then the more when you are facing a problem, it trains you both to change small things and then look long-term for the effects of those changes. And that what, combination of small changes and long-term is... What was uh, the name of the workbook? So we can just pin it on the top if folks are curious, because I'm curious. So, uh... so it's it, the Army, believe it or not, put it up on Amazon, uh, and you can download it for Kindle for, I think, uh, a couple bucks. Um, it's, I believe it's called Creative Thinking, um, A Field Guide to Building Your Strategic Core. Um, but I'm pretty sure if you just Google Angus Fletcher and Creative Thinking, it'll come up because a lot of people have been, uh, have been purchasing it recently because of these articles. Yeah, okay, so thank you very much. Go ahead. I, I think um, that this would be really important to give to emphasize this skill in um, in children that grow up with scarcity um, because it is uh, you know there's the, the the scarcity related tunnel vision hypothesis so um, the trying to explain why people going through difficult times especially scarcity make very irrational economical uh, decisions, not just economical, but very irrational decisions. Like uh, you got unemployed uh, and you buy like, or let's say COVID happens and you buy a ton of toilet paper. Like these are tunnel vision decisions. Mm, you pile up on something specific. People don't really know why, what it is, but um, that's like a typical mechanism that people go through during extreme stress or scarcity that they make like tunnel vision decision and really bad economical or like not logical decisions at all. And um, it's basically a symptom of being stuck, right? Of not getting out of a loop. And I think uh, having this basic training and creativity from childhood on maybe would be, I don't know, it would be an interesting study if that would uh, decrease like this tunnel vision effect. I don't know if it would, but I do know that it would increase flexibility. 
Um, and, you know, generally it makes people less panicked the more creative they are. And so they're less inclined to kind of make those kinds of um, counterproductive impulsive moves because they're more willing to kind of let the situation unfold and as opposed to trying to control the situation out of a sense of panic and a desire to preserve normality. Um, so unfortunately, my, I don't know if you can tell my kids have returned home after being wonderful and uh, bedlam is unfolding in my house. So I think I'm going to have to hop off <laughs> this, um, this meeting. Um, but it has been wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And if anyone is interested, you can reach out uh, to, to talk to me. I mean, I, I am publicly available. I have an email uh, uh, that you can find uh, at Ohio State. I think I'm the only Angus at Ohio State. So if you Google Angus in Ohio State, you'll, you'll almost certainly find me. Um, and is there yeah. anything else that you guys would like to ask before I hop or? No. Uh, definitely check out the book up top because uh, uh, I, I got one. So it was, it was like three bucks or something, which was really low. So uh, pr pretty awesome. Looking forward to reading it. So thank you. Thank you for sharing and thank you for coming today. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. This was a really great room and that opened up so many more projects and questions in my mind that I will never have the any grant to do, but you know, it's interesting. <laughs> to think about. So, anyways, thank you so much uh, uh, for coming and taking the time and such a great discussion. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, time you want to come back, uh, come back. We hold rooms regularly. If you want to jump in, listen, you know, you're welcome. Absolutely. I will do. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your evening, everyone. And hopefully we'll get a chance to interact soon. Yep. Thank you. All right, take, take care. care. Uh, yeah, thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, if you like discussions like these, follow Science Society as usual. Um, we had to, to reschedule the room from tomorrow since an emergency came up for our guest speaker. We'll schedule another more roundtable discussion room um, for tomorrow. I actually like sometimes having like on Fridays like a more like we all discuss some topic and can like um, go wherever our minds bring us. I like that sometimes on Fridays and Saturday we have another guest speaker. He will talk about a really cool new technology that he um, helped develop. He's at the Max Planck Institute in Germany. That's why the room is at 1 p.m. EST. They, they are six hours ahead of us. Uh, it's uh, Dr. Pascalis, Organic Neuromorphic Electronics. And on Monday evening, we'll have a really cool talk about the exogeology, like about the exogeology uh, project. So it's geology in outer space, like uh, simulating and trying out what, uh, how, for example, this project is the main focus is about how ice could be on other planets, but he will also talk about other uh, metals and so on, um, because we <laughs> we told him how cool it is to have him here if he can talk like also more broadly about his outer space geology uh, project. So that's what he will do. So um, yeah. Then we'll have an evolutionary room. What makes us distinct as humans? There was recently found a, a bunch of genetic um, markers, basically, that makes us kind of distinct over uh, other species. I think that's also always uh, quite interesting to have this evolutionary um, rooms. And we'll have many more. We and then we'll have carbon negative production of acetone and isopropanol. So 
basically finding a making a fuel out of um out of carbon so um that's pretty cool also so yeah we have a lot of different topics we are booked until beginning of may so i actually have to recently tell um scientists to please find a later time on their calendar than they asked so yeah come back uh will be an exciting month april and uh thanks for coming everyone thank you katarina for the amazing work many interesting uh, room in the line i i back channeled uh angus uh, takeaway that i quickly wanted to share in in that trying to bridge what i've learned in school in the iq space to some creative tasks that i'm struggling with uh just to take away uh, i appreciate how his paper mentioned like computational approaches extending mechanistic approaches and bridging that gap and i'm finding myself when i'm struggling with these creative tasks i'm oscillating from asking the question how can i build a robot to do this creative task that i'm failing at doing and then i'm oscillating from asking myself that question to visualizing myself building a robot to do those things and then i'm trying to absorb what i do from that visualization into my training uh so i wanted uh, i'll try to follow up with uh, angus fletcher in the future but it was a really cool talk and i look forward to reading his book yeah thank you bobby yeah i think um yeah that's an interesting way of doing it visualization as a as a also a very effective technique i think to train that so that's really cool that you can do it um so trying to Easy, easier said than done but i'm trying to yeah so thanks for all the great questions and um we'll hear you back tomorrow i'll post the the room oh yeah and then on on sundays we have now weekly recap room so if you missed like a lot of guest speaker events here we will have from now on on sunday uh 1 p.m est on sundays like a summary so where we uh where the moderators like summarize the rooms really quick and then can if you had any questions left we can try to address them so uh yeah um thank you everyone and i appreciate everyone's um coming and questions thanks okay take care everybody thank you bye bye three two one bye